Welcome to Stories from the NNI. I'm Lisa Friedersdorf, Director of the National Nanotechnology Coordination Office. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Leo Lee, Assistant Professor of Physics at Brown University. Leo, thank you so much for joining us today. To get us started, can you tell us a little bit about your research and how you first got involved in nanotechnology? Yeah, of course. I did my postdoc research on studying 2D material, and that's when I start to get exposed to the fascinating world of uh, nanotechnology. And what we do essentially is uh, use scotch tape to exfoliate a small crystal of 2D material and stack them together to create a heterostructure that has the desired interface for the physics that we want to study. And because of the nature of the 2D crystal, they are usually micrometer in size and sub-nanometer in thickness. To process these crystals, we need to use a lot of nanotechnology to do the research we want. Can you talk about some of the properties that you look for in these 2D materials and some of the materials that you're using? So Lego block is a perfect analogy for what we're doing, except that these Lego blocks are extremely small. They are one layer of atoms uh, in thickness. And the several different type of material that we look for, the most important one is the one that carry electron. Right. So uh, a common candidate or common uh, choice of material include uh, graphene, which is one layer of atom, or transition metal dicalcogenide, which is three layer, and uh, there are more semiconductors. So these are the core material that carry electron, and that's the material we want to study. But in order to have this material in a high-quality environment, right, we need a very flat substrate, because when you only have one layer of atom, small up and down in the substrate can, can feel like Mount Everest for the one layer of atom. So we need 2D material that's extremely flat and also insulating as a substrate. And the choice of material I think what everybody's using is hexagonal boron nitride. We also call that white graphene because it has exact same uh, lattice structure. It's a honeycomb lattice. It has the same uh, lattice constant. The only difference is that it's completely insulating. So it doesn't interfere with the electron behavior in the, for example, graphene, but it provides a uh, ideal substrate. And some other component that we look for is, for example, for a transistor, you want a uh, gate electrode, and we use graphite as the gate electrode to control how many electrons we have flowing inside the graphene. More recently, there's a new twist in the uh, Lego block building business that MIT group in 2018, they discovered that if you take two crystal of graphene and you twist them by 1.1 degree, a lot of really cool physics comes out. Even, even though graphene is a very kind of a boring metal, once you twist, uh, you start to become superconductor or you become insulator, or depending on the uh, condition you tune into, you could also become a ferromagnet. A big part of the community has been focusing on this topic for the last several years. You mentioned ferromagnetism. What are potential applications that would use these magic angles? Right. So usually when I get this question, I have to uh, break it down into two parts. In the biggest picture, material engineering really is just engineering the electronic property in the material. And usually what we do is just to cook different elements into different form of compound. And one compound will give you one property, right? And the the ferromagnet, for example, is the key component for how computer memory works. You need a ferromagnet that has some memory effect to maintain, to store information. 
So a ferromagnet in this kind of material really is a perfect candidate for making smaller, thinner memory storage unit, right? But the the fact that we have uh, superconductivity insulator ferromagnetism in the same material adds a lot of degrees of freedom when it comes to material engineering. We can start from one piece of same material and just by designing different gate to have all these property in the same device. It creates a new degrees of freedom for us to do circuit design. And uh, these circuits are not only compatible with classical computation, they could be compatible with uh, potential quantum computation. So in the biggest picture, if you look, uh, ignore all the detailed technological challenge, I think that's the, that's the goal. And, and the second part of this is that, of course, uh, there are lots of challenges for us to get there. For example, we're building on tiny flakes that we exfoliate using scotch tape by hand. In order to have any industrial scale application, we need to figure out how to create these devices on a, on a larger scale. That's a big challenge that uh, I think a lot of people are working on right now. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the instrumentation you might use for growing these materials in the future. And you mentioned the substrate being hexagonal boron nitrate, which is an insulator. Are you able to use standard atomic layer deposition techniques in order to put these single layers down? Or is that something that you'll be able to do in the future? I think there's a big chunk of this community is uh, striving for what exactly what you described. They're trying to do uh, atomic layer deposition to grow hexagonal brown nitride and also graphene and the more hexagonal brown nitride. When they succeed, essentially we can just follow the recipe of the semiconductor industry and build you know integrated circuit based on 2D material. I don't do that myself, so I don't know a lot of the detailed struggle they're wrestling with right now. But from what I, the limited amount of information I heard, the quality of the crystal is uh, not yet at the same level of exfoliated crystals. Can you share your experience regarding the instrumentation that you need access to for your research and how you go about getting access? Right. So the instrumentation is key for doing research in this field. And the several tools that's uh, essential for our research includes uh, ebeam lithography. We use that to write tiny masks on the uh, order of uh, micron or submicron or on tens of nanometer in order to do fabrication. And then apart from mask writing, uh, we use uh, Plasma Edge RIE system to, to define the shape of our device. And then we use metal deposition to create electrical contact, right? interconnect with the transistors, uh, do the wiring part of the things. So here at Brown, we have a clean room ourselves, which is just down the hallway. So literally, we walk out of the door of their lab, and 20 seconds later, we're inside this clean room where we have access to, to the tool we need. But I do understand it's a struggle sometimes. For example, the research you can do is limited by the tool you have access to. For example, here at Brown, our resolution is about 100 nanometer in ebeam lithography which means that if we want to do uh, fabrication or if we want to research at the physics that's associated with the 10 nanometer scale, we essentially have to go outside of Brown, for example, to Harvard, to use their clean room to, to get this capability. And when I was a postdoc, this, this issue was uh, uh, even bigger because uh, uh, I was using a clean room that's being expanded. So occasionally will be shut down for like three months or four months. And I have to take a train, three or four hours train ride to use the clean room in under the city. 
which becomes a little bit of a struggle because we have to use the clean room very often in order to make progress in our research. The instrumentation is uh, critical to our research, and uh, in order to expand the impact or reach a bigger population or a bigger audience in the science community, we need to have more access to these uh, nanofabrication instrumentations. I'd like to talk a little bit about your lab and the makeup of the students. I noticed that you have both graduate and undergraduate students, and you're a professor in the physics department. You've spent a bit of time talking about material science in the materials that you're investigating, and then looking at the properties and transistors, I think of electrical engineering. Can you talk about the diversity and disciplines that make up your lab? So the people who are directly affiliated with my lab, they're all physicists or inspiring to be physicists, although their skill set varies quite a bit. I have interacted with students who are more material engineers. They are very intuitive when it comes to material properties. Right? So when it comes to exfoliating small crystals of 2D layer and stack them together, they're on top of it right away because that's singing their language. And I've worked with students who are essentially coders, the material side of things, they, you know, it's, uh, uh, they're okay with, but when it comes to coding, they're like swimming in, in the water. And of course, there are also physicists who, before they do anything, they like to understand the equation. And after the data comes out, you know, they're very intuitive when it comes to, oh, that's Coulomb blockade, things like that. Even though they are all physicists, their interest varies so much watching them interact. I can totally see them going on their different path after this lab and become you know, material scientists or uh, some, some of them even could be biologists. And when it comes to collaboration, we interact with a wider variety of discipline. We have collaboration ongoing with engineers uh, from the engineering department, including material scientists and electric engineers, and also some other physicists from other universities. So I want to totally switch gears now away from your personal research and get your perspective on nanotechnology broadly. Um, You know, we've celebrated more than 20 years of the NNI, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on where you think the most exciting accomplishments to date have been, and even maybe more importantly, what excites you most about potential applications in the future? There are two things that excite me most. One of them is the fact that we start to incorporate quantum into nanotechnology. In the past, we perfected nanofabrication or we pushed it forward by so much that the semiconductor industry is capable of making the computer that that we use today. But more recently, physicists start to introduce quantum component into the circuit. For example, uh, adding quantum dot to function as a qubit. And then when you cool it down to low temperature, then you have a classical circuit, but there's a small component in there that behaves like a quantum. This is still very much ongoing, and the people are trying to convert this into functional quantum computer. I don't think they are fully successful yet, but when they do, this will be a big breakthrough. It will be a different era of uh, computation. And there's a second aspect which is the emergence of 2D material, in my opinion. I'm heavily biased here. But even the scotch tape method and the manual stacking method, right? we're creating a different material platform that's completely new to human beings. And this material platform is not completely mature enough for industrial-scale application, but it's showing physics that's unheard of, that's uh, beyond our 
imagination uh, when dealing with classical, uh, the conventional material engineering method. So looking forward, I think as this uh, material platform becomes more mature, it could enable another revolution in terms of computation technologies. Can you share maybe some advice that you would give to students that might be interested in seeking a career in nanotechnology or another STEM field? So I've had a lot of students coming up to me, both through research and through teaching. They come up to me and ask me about the essence of quantum computation. I think it's an intriguing topic and they want to know how it works. And usually that's a question that's hard to answer with one or two sentences. And mostly the answer is that you really have to go through quantum and learn the aspect about how computation works, learn about what is the challenge, what is the barrier that we're trying to break through before we can talk about the method that we use to break through that barrier. So I think the advice to young students who inspire to be expert in nanotechnology or uh, computational technology is to learn the fundamental and learn the details in how to do research in a lab. And when you put all the knowledge together, when you put all the dots together, and then you will get a bigger picture, fuller picture of the challenge that we're facing. And that's when you shine and push the boundary forward a little bit in the direction that's your strong suit. Leo, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us about your research. I think it's very exciting and I look forward to seeing what you do in the future. Do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? Working with a lot of students, mostly I work with physicists, and their focus is on understanding physics and the mystery of the universe. But at the same time, I realized that everybody is still a human being. Behind all the equations and everything, there's the struggles, emotions of a human being. This is amplified by the past several years when everybody went through the pandemic and the lockdown, and the world is also shifting in many different ways, the climate change and geopolitical conflict. On top of that, students are going through their graduate school and they're learning these very hard topic of uh, physics and engineering. It comes with a lot of anxiety, frustration, and even depression. So I just want to take this opportunity to advocate for mental health for all the physicists, students, or professors alike. Apart from physics research, it is also important, perhaps more important, to take care of yourself, take care of your own mental health. Uh, I just want to advocate for that. 